Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with the Executive Director of the Tutwiler Community Education Center, Hans Hagemann. He is a graduate of Princeton and Columbia University Law School and started and led organizations for underserved children in Harlem, Kenya, and India. He is a recipient of the Robin Hood Foundation Heroes Award and the Essence Magazine Award. In his current capacity, he helps the community and youth development located in the Mississippi Delta. He's got a great story for Full of law and inspiration. Enjoy this interview. Well, Hans, nice to meet you, man. How's life? You as well. Life is good. Life is good. How about on your end? It's excellent. Where are you located? <laughs> After most of my life in New York, I am now in the Mississippi Delta in the town of Tutwiler, Mississippi. Wow. That's quite a radical departure. <laughs> it, it, it really is. And, and also, I know you, you have a, a music podcast as well, right? Yeah. I got Neon Jazz. Well, this- yeah. That's right. So this is Tutwiler is known as home of the blues. So just okay. Yeah, as yeah. a matter of fact, there is actually a blues festival, a concert going on this weekend. I'm looking forward to going to. There's a local guy named Jason Vivoni. He's got a radio huh. show. And uh, yeah, we we dabble in the blues around here. You know, I mean, okay. that's the, the, the Kansas City sound was based in the blues. Charlie Parker and Jay McShann and all those early guys. That was really what infused their jazz and made it stand out. I, 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 that's, that's very cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Well, hey, man, it's nice to meet you. Before we move on into your life, I want to know mm-hmm. how you survived COVID. It did its own thing on all of us. How did you get through it? And how has it changed the way that you do things now? I am a big believer in something called post-traumatic growth is number one. I'm also a big believer in, um, like Nassim Taleb maybe coined the term anti-fragility. So you're either fragile or you're resilient and bounce back, or tough times make you even better and stronger. And I like to think I'm I'm mostly anti-fragile. So as soon as things got locked down, um, I was running a, another nonprofit at the time in the Hudson Valley that provided uh, garden-based education instruction. We beat the schools to getting our uh, online curriculum uh, there to the students. I mean, so that we were ahead of the game and anticipating my alma mater, Princeton University, uh, was kind of a, a, a bit of a panic about what the interns from Princeton were going to do, what, where they were going to go. And in my tiny organization, we took on uh, and were prepared to take on 11 interns. Uh, and, I'm, you know, three years ago, I'm keeping in touch with a bunch of them now. And that intern experience for, for my organization, but for them, was really powerful. Uh, it gave, I, one of the things I did was... Uh, well, you know, I, who knows what the mortality the rate of this thing is, but I know there are people less fortunate, less healthy, right? So zest and energy is a big thing for me. And so being prepared for that, I mean, why work out? Why do the breath work that I do? Why do the meditation that I do uh, if it's not in pursuit of something bigger than myself, right? But so that allowed them to, to um, volunteer to deliver meals to, to, to shut-ins and seniors. Uh, who, who couldn't get out for food when everything was locked down. And, and, and I, I met somebody in their nineties who, who asked me because it was a time where everybody's wearing masks. Don't get me into that. But, um, where he says, could, could you just, he says, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a World War II veteran. He says, I've got nobody looking after me. He says, thank you for this food donation. He says, but can you just please take off your mask so I can see another human face? And I, there was no fear. Of course. Absolutely. Um, you know, weighing the risks. I was also working at a uh, part of my job as working as a, at a maximum security prison for teenage boys who uh, were who, who had been incarcerated uh, 
and, and convicted in adult court of extremely violent crimes. And these boys were, were not vaccinated and, and there were rumors of COVID running rampant through the prison. But I also needed to run my programs, which was vegetable gardening and a breathwork program. And it made sense with COVID. Why, why would I stop doing breathwork? And these kids are shut down in these concrete walls long enough. And if they're not going to have any inside interact outside interaction, it's going to make things worse for them. Um, and so I saw myself in that role as, as continuing to provide service to them. And then I also got to learn a lot more about the body and the, and the difference between um, the theory of disease uh, versus terrain theory, uh, where if you take care of the terrain, the, the disease doesn't have as much of an opportunity to operate. So those are just some of the, to me, it was a fascinating time. I'm, I'm, I, I can be alone, but never lonely. And, and, and I'm, was raised to be able to be comfortable with my own thoughts and my kids were home. So I got to see my, more of my kids and, and, and work stuff, you know, with them. So I understand that people suffer during that time. Uh, but again, in terms of anti-fragility and in terms of post-traumatic growth, it was an opportunity for me to do things that uh, made sense for my life. So Hans, let's get to a point of understanding exactly what you do for a living. I'm going to put you in front of a bunch of grade school kids, third graders. One of them asks, what do you do for a living? How do you answer them? I run a community developments, a community, sorry, a community center in the uh, Mississippi Delta, where uh, we work with kids, young people to to uh, develop self-determination and the ability to to live their best lives, both in terms of the world of education, but also in terms of making a living. And then we support people who are older and don't have access to, to to food and job resources, again, to improve those outcomes. So when you were in the third grade, what was your dream? What did you want to be when you grew up? My parents were always uh, big contributors to whatever community they happened to be in. My father was a, a white Methodist minister whose family was from Nebraska. My mother was a black woman whose family came up from the South in the, in the Great Migration. And we ended up in New York City where they put together a residential drug treatment center. So I had a bit of a schizophrenic existence where we had our apartment above two floors of dormitories with uh, men and women coming in during the day for therapy. But during the night, we had about 60 men who lived below us. Most of them, if not all of them, were uh, recently released from jail or prison or were Vietnam veterans. And uh, I learned a lot about redemption and life lessons from them. And during the day, I would go to an elite private school where I was on scholarship, where I would hang out with people like JFK Jr., who's a few years behind me, who I actually stayed in touch with all those years. Um, and and um, the scions of, of manufacturing and investments and, 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 and all that. Um, and my father, when, now when people go and then they bring stuff like History Month or whatever, you know, what you bring, whatever you bring. My kids would bring pictures of my father, their grandfather standing behind Dr. King after they've both been released from prison during a protest down south. Or they would bring a letter that my father had received from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference signed by Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and so I was always going to be in a direction of service to the public. And I thought just watching my parents struggle, I said, you know what, the best way I can do that is through the practice of law. So even before third grade, 
I was going to be a lawyer, uh, and 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 that that was my whole focus. And <laughs> I actually eventually made that come true. So, what were some of the seeds, the exact seeds that were planted in you in childhood that made you who you are today? Well, some of them again were were, were watching my parents, uh, how they move through life, and 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 their belief in in people falling down, but the ability for them to get back up with with help. Um, there's another one that I didn't really come to grips with until uh, maybe three years ago, um, where we we didn't. It was it was it was a it, certain aspects of, of of growing up in in Spanish Harlem were a little little challenging, um, and my parents did the did a great job with the three kids, and and we've all been become very accomplished. Um, but one of the challenges was medical care. And so my parents heard about this great doctor who he was um, he was providing um, medical services to uh, preteens at, at, at Rockefeller University uh, for free. And so they signed me up. Um, and fast forward many years later, um, I was watching a news show a few years ago, like I mentioned, and um, I had I came face to face with this guy who um, now dead who was a serial pedophile, this doctor. And as a preteen, um, you know, again, I, I wasn't a victim. I was a survivor. Um, and I always told myself from that time, those preteen years, that I was going to be the one adult, at least, that any child would be able to trust no matter what. Um, so there was that experience. Um but it, that and, and then watching my parents' example of, of never giving up on anybody, um, even a lot of people who gave up on themselves um, moving through. And then also knowing how fortunate I was when I saw other people in the community who weren't born into my family, who, who weren't taught that, uh, you know, you have the tools to, to, to do good things and big things and you could take your life in whatever direction you wanted it. And that was always clear to me. And the, the division was always clear and it's something that didn't feel fair. And so my goal was to, to, to make it right. And now at, at this uh, <laughs> later stage of my life, you know, my tagline is to become an ancestor worth remembering. So who's been kind of a, a consistent hero for you in your life? There have been a few, um, you know, one one was 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 my father. Um, there was another one who was the chaplain at the uh, Princeton University Chapel, um, Dean Ernest Gordon. And Ernest Gordon um, was somebody who, interestingly, as a young person, did not believe that God existed. Uh, he was a member of the Scottish Highlanders during World War II uh, and was captured and was part of the, the I guess, the, the Famous movie for people of a certain age, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. He was part of the Death March uh, and was left for dead in a Japanese prison camp. Uh, but obviously he he didn't die and he found God in that prison camp. And so speaking with him, talking with him, he was he was one of my mentors. Another guy um, is a guy named Adam Walensky, who was a speechwriter for Bobby Kennedy. And Adam and I found each other in the early 90s when I was working for the United States Senate as chief counsel uh, to a, a Senate subcommittee on the Constitution. And Adam had a plan for reforming uh, policing in, in, in the United States. And it was a great plan. 
And he received federal funding for that. And I got to travel to St. Louis. I got to travel to Mississippi. I got to travel to um, Baltimore where we and other places where we were police officers to make them responsible to the community, to make them fearless warriors. But but in the most positive sense, um, officers who would be out of their vehicles talking with the community, they let the people know that they were were part of the community. Uh, they were college graduates, highly trained, both in verbal skills, but also physical skills, if it ever came to that. Um, and and that's a program that should have been a model for years, except the war on terror cut the funding to that program. Um, but Adam never gave up. And now he's in his mid-80s, I guess, living in Colorado. Um, and, and he's another uh, one of my heroes. There, there, there are a few others, but those are those are just some of them. So if you can meet anybody alive on the planet right now and spend some time with them, who would it be? It would probably be some people I've already met, but I would like to go back to them for some funding for my nonprofit. <laughs> so, you know, one of those guys is Bill Ackman at Pershing Square, um, who has been a, a, a generous donor to my causes. But I would I would like to get in front of him to explain to him the importance of the project that, that I'm uh, currently working on. Um, there, there probably aren't, I'm, I'm trying to think of any politicians and I don't think there are any, um, that, that I would like to meet. And, and there's some, uh, Stephen Pressfield, the author, Stephen Pressfield is, uh, you know, somebody I would. And then there's a, a, a blues guitarist again, not selfishly, but for the cause of my organization, Kingfish, who, who's actually a local blues guitarist. I mean, he's a genius. And um, I have somebody who wants to meet him. And if I can make that introduction, uh, then it would really help my organization. So if I can get in front of Kingfish, I'd love to be able to pitch my my cause to him. So those are yeah. those are a few of the people. So tell me, what is it that motivates you every day to do the work that you do? You obviously give a lot. What is that motivator for you? It's it's ingrained and, and it's always to to. And, and I pay more attention to it now that I'm older, but to wake up every morning, figure out what's the best me, uh, try to figure out in the areas of work, life and love, how I can be the best me every day. And again, with, with, with that, that tagline of becoming an ancestor worth remembering, uh, that's, that's a, that's a North star for me. And I don't make it any more specific than that. Um, because otherwise I get caught up in comparisons and say, well, I'm falling down on this job. I'm falling down on that job. But to know that, that, that in fact, I am trying to become the best ancestor I can be. And then also what I guess the uh, journalist David Brooks called resume virtue virtues versus eulogy virtues. Earlier in my career, I kind of paid attention to both, but more so resume virtues. You know, what's going to be the next step? on 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 the, the path uh career wise but now the eulogy virtues are kicked in at, at my age and <laughs> i i visualize frankly uh what do i want people to say if i'm sneaking into my own funeral what what do i you know what do i want them to be saying about me so i, I kind of go about life with that in mind what are you the proudest of that you've done so far in your life There are a few things, um, but I, I think I'd have to say the uh, independent school that I founded with my brother in 1992 that's still running to this day. Um, 
it, it predated charter school legislation, so there was no real model. We called it an independent school, and, and we, we avoided calling it a private school because if we had people with like, well, how can kids in your community afford a private school? So we kind of compromised, called it an independent school. And there were a lot of roadblocks there. First was getting the initial funding. And so uh, I talked to my brother who had gotten his master's degree in, in education um, from Harvard after being an undergrad there and was teaching in public school, but wasn't thrilled, wanted to do more. I said, what, what, how much money would it take for you to come join me in this? And in, in fact, in the place where we grew up, because my parents were in poor health and I came back from Washington, D.C., um, to to uh, watch over them, but keep them in the house that they built and and then also do something good for the community, which was going to be the school. And he goes, I don't know, uh, maybe $50,000. And I don't know, yeah, it, it was 1992, but $15,000 in 1992 was not a lot of money. But that's the number we decided on. And so I got $25,000 from a, a family friend who was a professional gambler and the other 25000 from um, JFK Jr., who had just joined something called the Robin Hood Foundation. And um, he was we were his first pitch to them. And he got us our money. So there we were. We started. Um, didn't know it at the time. But back in 1993, there were, I guess, about 2,400 homicides in New York, because of mainly because of crack. Um, and we didn't realize that starting a school would put us on the, the, the death list of the uh, family running the, the uh, crack traffic in the community. We were interfering because people couldn't line up in front of our school to buy. And so they took out a contract in our lives. The police investigated, offered us 24-hour protection and or the opportunity to get a discount on the body armor that they bought. Or uh, also, they were willing to expedite uh, a, a carry permit for a handgun for me. Um, I told them 24 hour protection. Yeah. If they're going to get me, they're going to get me. I, I believe in self-help. Um, and so I carried a gun for two years and wore body armor when it wasn't too hot while I was starting that school. And we had our 15 minutes of fame where we met, uh, everywhere, everybody from, uh, the hall of fame baseball player, Reggie Jackson, um, to, to, um, Jeff Zucker, formerly of NBC news, I think, um, uh, or CNN actually, um, uh, met personally, um, Oprah, uh, got, I received a compliment from Maya Angelou, um, was tapped on the shoulder at one awards dinner by Beyonce and Jay-Z who thanked me for doing the work that I was doing. And so, um, we had, we had some tough, tough early years. Um, I, my brother and I worked together for nine years and, uh, the thing is still, still, still running all these years later. So it's that, but then there's also one that's not as, as glamorous, not as long lived, which was a girl's school, uh, in India for poor girls, Hindu and Muslim girls that I started with what was then my life savings. And, uh, my local partners did a great job. We kept it running as long as we could for 10 years. But then um, they and we were threatened with uh, violence by uh, fundamentalists who didn't believe that Hindu and Muslim girls should be educated and that lower caste girls should not be educated. So after 10 years, we had to shut things down. But we all we we, we changed dozens of girls lives. Um, those are a couple of things. So if you have a dream tonight, you run into a 20 year old version of yourself and you could give that version of you a piece of advice based on the wisdom you've gained in your life. What would you tell your young version? I would kind of warn them that it's going to be tough, that there, there's not going to be a straight line to success or joy or happiness. 
that you're going to take some real hard hits, but they're all going to make you who you're supposed to be. Uh, and that and there are a couple of things that's come to mind. I, I, I like to think that I'm pretty much a person of integrity. I, I do what I say I'm going to do. I've dropped the ball a couple of times and I would advise my future self, make sure you never drop the ball. Always do what you say you're going to do. Absolutely. So everyone out there has a perception of you, family, friends, uh, clients, colleagues, but you're the one living your life and leading the show. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? I'm, uh, I used to call myself an empath, but I think it's more, it has to do with compassion than empathy. Um, I'm someone who long ago decided that work-life balance didn't exist for me. I'm not sure it should exist for anybody that I was, I'm someone who believes more in harmony, that things need to harmonize as opposed to putting stuff in baskets and making, making sure they all balance on that scale of life. Um, so, so harmony, compassion, um, I, I know, and I got the receipts, as they say, to prove it, that I'm, that I'm heart centered in terms of how I move through life and in terms of leadership. Uh, I have found by hard one experience that it really is, it encourages, um, not the absence of fear, but being able to move forward in the presence of fear. Um, and, and that, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who, who, has taken the gifts that were given to me and, and never thought twice about trying to pay it forward. So if anyone out there wants to learn more about you and, and what you do and to help and anything pertaining to your award, where can they go? Where's the best place? There, there, there are a couple of places. One is I'll, you know, I'll give up my personal email, which is Hans at Hans Hageman.com. I am Ronin for life on Instagram. Um, you know, Ronin with a master of a samurai concept. Um, and then I'm at the Tupweiler Community Education Center. So uh, they can they can look me up there, see what we do. Uh, they should be gentle because I'm the guy that um, also has to do the website. I'm a little behind on my website skills with that. So, But you, you go, they can go to the website and, and leave information if they want more uh, way they can, they can help out here. Wonderful. Hans, man, this has been great. Thank you for opening up. Thank you for giving us a, a view into your world. It's a great one. You're doing wonderful work. I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, music, and more from around the globe. If you want to hear more interviews, you can visit Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on YouTube or find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Mm-hmm.